New Year's on board was all revel and roistering, crackers with prizes and champagne with oysters. Each knot from the shore she could feel adolescence depart in the wake's churning green phosphorescence. And churning in her was, as if by duress, an appetite, bone-deep, a need to transgress. The evenings were worse once the supper bell rang. The darkness, the wine, well, her blood fairly sang. A dark Turkish ensign gave me my first kiss, and then she paused. Should I be telling you this? Ah, oh, might as well learn, she went on with a shrug. His tongue in my mouth was a slimy, fat slug. I remember I thought to myself, holy Jesus, this will not be worth it unless Father sees us. Your shelf for my talking sophisticated topics all the time. Your shelf for my kick back, relax, crack a book, unwind at your shelf for my. Your shelf or Hello and welcome to your shelf or mine. I'm Becky Standall, Youth Services Librarian here at the Longview Public Library. I'm Austin Brigden, Administrative Assistant at the Longview Public Library. Welcome to our April podcast, our National Poetry Month podcast, yeah. where we're talking about David Rakoff. This is the, what would this be? January, February, March, April. This is the fourth in our ongoing series. The R Shelf Challenge. Hope hope some of you are following along on Beanstack, earning those earning those badges. Uh, we're gonna have a prize at the end. Uh, we're cooking that up. It's gonna be exciting. But it's it's even more exciting than that. Is just this community of people all reading together. I love it so much. Yeah. Um, so make sure you go to longviewlibrary.beanstack.org and sign up for the challenge. And each month, and you can go back. You don't. You don't have to do it inside the month that we are doing it, but you click on the activity badge, mark the activities that you completed to earn your badge, and once you've earned all 12 badges, you'll be entered to win the drawing at the end of the year, and listening to the podcast is one of the um, activities each oh, yeah. month, and um, there's other ones, reading a book, watching this or Watching that. a documentary, yeah, uh, TV adap adaptations, movie adaptations. There's all kinds of things in there. All right. Uh, so we're going to talk about some library news here? Sure. Go for it. Well, top of my mind this morning is that 2022 LPL Seed Library launched today. Uh, it's April it, 15th. It's April 15th. It's a kit-based program this year. Uh, so, folks, the first 100 folks to pick up their kits got a, a bit of a deluxe kit um, with some extra goodies, a uh, variety of, of seeds that our staff carefully curated. And very exciting to me, along with that this year, for the first time, we have a Beanstack Challenge. Uh, we're going to have a number of prize drawings. Um, the program is going to run to the end of July, so prize drawings be very early August. And... Uh, uh, there's a number of challenges you can do on Beanstack, uh, things to do in your garden. So it's exciting. I'm very excited. Yeah, and you can sign up for that starting today also at longviewlibrary.beanstack.org where all of our different challenges live. Yeah, that's right. That's right. We are also gearing up for our summer reading challenge, which is going to start June 15th. So keep an eye on Beanstack for that. Um, registration should start for summer reading on June 1st. All right. That's very exciting. Northwest Voices is also kicking back into gear. Uh, we're going to be starting uh, this year, also celebrating National Poetry Month, with Kelly Russell Agadon on April 22nd at 7 p.m. That's going to be a webinar. I'm going to hop on Zoom for that one. Very excited. Uh, Kelly's been down here to do some things before. She's got a new collection out, Dialogues with Rising Tides, out of, I think, Copper Canyon Press. Mm -hmm. uh, so we've got that. And that, that new collection has gotten really, really good reviews. I, I'm really excited. I haven't read it, but I'm excited to see it. It's It sounds really interesting. Kelly's Kelly's amazing. She had, uh, I remember when I was working on the Salau Review, shout out to the Salau Review over at uh, LCC, she was the featured writer for the Spring Arts Festival um, that we did at that time. And she had just done her also excellent collection, Letters from the Emily Dickinson Room. 
she's just a, she's just a wonderful poet. Also, you know, a wonderful literary citizen. She's one of the co-founders of Two Sylvia's Press, a champion of a lot of people's work. We're just very excited to kick off the season with her. Uh, looking forward to May. Uh, we've got Ann Stinson, um, who's originally a native of uh, Toledo, Washington. She's got a book out from uh, University of Oregon Press, The Ground at My Feet, Sustaining a Family in a Forest, which is sort of a memoir and a, uh, an examination of, of family forestry and, and her life in the Northwest. Uh, I am personally very excited about that one. And then we're also welcoming, in June, Alan Rose. I know a lot of you know Alan, to talk about his and read from his most recent novel, As If Death Summoned. So we're very excited to bring all those things back. Cool. Yeah, April 28th, mm-hmm. I believe, will be the library's 90, the 96th anniversary of the library's dedication. So there's going to be a little bit of a shindig. There's going to be an open house. Some of our stakeholder groups are going to be represented. They're going to be giving out goodies, uh, both of the edible variety and like, uh, you know, little little swag goodies yeah so there'll be like cake and crackers and there's going to be a a display in fact right at this very moment angela stevenson is setting up a history display Mm -hmm. and mandy ross and mandy ross so things are in the works lots and lots of things are in the works so with that with that let's move to and david rakoff yeah so this is the first author we've had this year that austin picked so i'll let him take it away my personal experience with David Rakoff is that I don't think I had any before this. So. <laughs> See how the tables have turned? <laughs> this is this is a position I've been in. And, you know, it turns out the first one I pick is, is a little bit out of left field, is a little bit, I don't know if folks, or some folks may, they may know David Rakoff, but they may not know that they know him. If you're a public radio listener of, you know, the last 20 years, uh, you might know his voice the minute you hear it because uh, David Rakoff in addition to writing um, critically acclaimed best-selling essays, books of essays, um, and then a, a novel was also a frequent contributor um, to This American Life. And that's that was my introduction to him. Uh, Becky's heard me talk about this a lot. This is this is one that's close to my heart. I teared up a couple times going through going through this stuff. Um, because I really, I really love David Rakoff, and I really love that whole crew of folks who were making um, radio art at that time, and some of whom still are. Um, the the This American Life crew, you know, Ira Glass, David Rakoff, David Sedaris, Shalom Auslander, Sarah Vowell, all those people, many more. Um, but David Rakoff is probably one of the most famous. He's got a voice, had a voice like nobody else's, just this silky, I, I, I can't describe it. Um, you'd have to hear it. But um, so we went ahead and read. We, we did a variety of things. I, I came up with, you know, the list of assignments for Becky. Uh, I went back and read his last collection of essays, Half Empty. Um, and then we both read his final uh, novel in verse, his, his debut his novel. first and final, yeah. Yeah, I, I say final because although this was his, his debut novel, he had done a lot of work in verse on the radio. He had done radio pieces in verse quite a bit. And so I think of it as sort of a culmination of that work. And it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful book. I'm holding it in my hand right now. Um, and then we also watched, we listened to an episode of This American Life that was done as a tribute. Our friend David, I recommend that to anybody who wants a quick introduction to Rakoff's Yeah, work. it's a nice, um, like a clip show kind of that Ira Glass edited and he does the commentary in between. It's really touching. You can really tell that they had a lot of love for each other. Yeah, yeah. An amazing person, David Rakoff. Touched a lot of people and a bit of a renaissance man, you know, stage performer, writer, visual artist. You know, there's there's a lot of stories about how he was constantly bestowing these little uh, gifts, little handmade boxes and little paintings to people. So how do you, how, Becky, how do we, how do we want to approach this? Do you want to talk a little bit about your impressions? Yeah, could you? So what I've learned about David Rakoff is that he is from, originally from Canada. Mm-hmm. Toronto. From Toronto, Jewish. That's mm. a big part of his culture and his commentary. Gay. Uh, gay. He moved to New York as a young man 
to yes. like make it big. By way of to- so, do you want me to give a little thumbnail? Yeah, let's give a, like a short thumbnail bio. bio. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. So David Rakoff uh, grew up in uh, Toronto, Jewish, uh, gay. Both we have to mention because they're big parts of his work and his identity. He majored in Japanese and went to Tokyo for a time. He tells these funny stories. He would tell rip- often uh, these stories about being sort of an unprofit because he was so wrong about everything. He went to Tokyo in like 86. And he had that story about how he picked Japanese because he thought it seemed like the hardest language to learn. Yes, 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 yes. Picked Japanese, ended up in Tokyo, 1986. And people, and he was working for some company and they were talking about like this newsletter that was going to be like on the, in, I don't even know if they used the word internet at that point. There was no internet point. at that point. And he's like, what a bunch of losers. That, that, that they could go on. They'd log in. And then communicate with each other. Yeah. So he was sitting there on the ground floor and he's just like, I got to get out of here. So he gets out of Japan and he heads to New York City. He also tells a story about going to some club because he's sort of a weird mix of like, he's he's social, he's this performer, but he's also sort of shy mm-hmm. and sort of a loner. And so he talks a story about making himself go to this discotheque, the Danceteria, I think. And uh, this 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 young woman is like up dancing on the stage and these bangles and she's loud and he's like oh my god i gotta get out of here she's aw- she's not going anywhere that was madonna <laughs> so he tells all these stories but anyway yeah he came to new york um and worked in publishing there's a lot of essays and stories about about his work in publishing um and then i think began working on the radio and um that's probably the thing people know him from the most um uh when he was um 22 he got cancer i think it was hodgkin's lymphoma very young very sort of freakish situation and was treated for that and and cured but it turned out and this is a big part of uh, you know the latter part of his work this plays very large is he um the radiation he had as part of that treatment, which it turns out later he didn't need to have. He, the doctors had told him maybe it would be easier than the chemo. It ended up not working. He had to have the chemo anyway. Years later, you know, when he was 45 or something like that, 44, 45, it turned out that the spot where that radiation had, had gone in, he got a, um, another form, of, a very virulent form of cancer. And fought that for a few years and ultimately uh, died when he was 47. Yeah, it sounded like four years. Yeah, very difficult. And continued to make art, you know. Up until his death. Literally, literally. Mm -hmm. Some really heartbreaking, heartbreaking stuff. But he, you know, he did a a performance, Becky and I watched, that I recommend anybody go onto YouTube and look up from a, a touring live show. I don't know if it was touring. Maybe it was just a live show that This American Life did called Invisible Made Visible. And he did a piece there a few months before he died. Mm -hmm. He had lost the use of one of his arms. And he's just, he sparkles. He's just amazing. And then he was was rushing to finish his final novel in verse, or his debut novel (laughs) and final book, Love, Dishonor, Marry, Die, Cherish, Perish, a novel by David Rakoff. And then, you know, to, right up to the end, he was recording the audio. He insisted mm-hmm. on recording the audio. Um, but I think the way, one of the things, both in the essays, in the book, in his performances, the way he approached death, the way he approached that illness, is really something. Really, really beautiful. You know, he was not someone who, you know, he, he, he talked about the world as unforgiving. You know, he, and, he, and, he, and, he, and he was a fan of oh, what did he call it it's a sort of strategic pessimism uh, and uh and yet its beauty was entwined you know for him and he really put that across the beauty was entwined with the unforgiving nature of life and what made the beauty so precious so now i've talked long enough let's let becky give <laughs> some impressions so um this was back in 2012 and then um yes. he yeah that performance that you can watch if you just search on youtube invisible made visible david rakoff's performance is the first one that comes up but there's some other people that were part of that too tignataro and david sedaris and stuff a lot of a lot of regulars um and it is a very 
moving performance. It's only about 15 minutes long. Mm -hmm. So he recorded that, I think, in May of 2012. And he died in August. And a lot of the things I was reading about his novel talked about how he was on like a literal deadline. Mm -hmm. He really wanted to finish this this book. There was something I read where they're talking to, I think, his editor. And he was saying that normally... Rakoff is very like self-deprecating and stuff. And he said, I think this is your best work. And he said, it is. It's too bad that it will have to be published posthumously because he knew that he wasn't going to live to see it come out. It was published in 2013. Mm-hmm. So I read it. It's pretty short. It's it's very unique. I When I started, I did not know what it is in... Um, Oh gosh, a particular <laughs> particular rhyming scheme, something tetrameter. Yeah, and I think it is the same rhyme scheme as "Twas the Night it Before is. Christmas." Yep. Yes, it's the same rhyme scheme as "Twas the Night Before Christmas." Anapestic tetrameter is the rhyme scheme. Ah, duh. <laughs> um. Anyway, so the whole novel is written in rhyme, and I've read lots and lots and lots of novels in verse, and none of them were rhyming ones maybe the closest would be like uh, you know old kind of epic poems um, that I read in college and stuff but um, so it was really unusual and it's also not a novel in the traditional like narrative sense it's kind of like a series of vignettes that interconnect and you don't really see I mean knowing it's a novel reading it I'm like okay so how are these people all related but it doesn't mm-hmm. really all come together until like the last stanza yeah and it comes together in a very very satisfying way I thought yeah it's kind of a constellation mm-hmm. yeah and you don't see the shape of it until yeah the end but he follows several different characters um, kind of through the 20th century starting with uh, this character named Margaret who's mm-hmm. born to a 19 year old widow in Chicago, grows up working in the stockyards, has an abusive stepfather, mm-hmm. and escapes him at 12. And as uh, she's leaving, heading west on a train, is essentially taken care of. By a Jewish man. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, who then later, the other characters you follow are like his mm-hmm. his son and his niece. and. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's yes. interesting to see all these characters are kind of connected by little like kindnesses or yeah cruelties. Or cruelties. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And the book is also illustrated. I'd read that he had planned to illustrate it himself and he could he not do it. He could not do it. He was too weak. Mm-hmm. Um, this is amazing. You know, it's hard to separate, uh, you know, the production of the book from the book itself. In this case, it was talked about a lot, the way it was produced. Although, of course, the book stands on its own. It's this sort of sparkling, again, it's this jewel-like thing. It's so finely done. And it's amazing. It is amazing to be doing that as you were battling Mm -hmm. cancer. I mean, it sounds like I read a couple of background pieces, and it sounds as though he had been mulling over this book for about a decade before he got sick. And, you know, went to his editor. uh, Half Empty was very successful. Went to his editor and was like, the next thing I want to do is this weird little novel completely in verse and you know the editor being a editor in rhyming couplets yeah being editor being an editor is like um you know like oh the most saleable thing but was like we got to do it he recognized the moment he was like this guy is a great artist and he's not going to be around for and we, need, we yeah. just need to do it and the collaboration that went into it for the illustrations was beautiful in and of itself. The, all the people who sort of held up David Rakoff and helped him finish this, um, it was really a tribute to him and the kind of person he was in the in the community of, of literature at that, at that moment. But yeah, at first I was like, I had to get back into it. And it was very reminiscent. I remember the radio pieces that are in a very similar... At first it was hard for... Once you get into it, once you get it... <laughs> I started it and I was like... And this is like the night before Christmas. Like I read that poem like a gajillion <laughs> and then times. You got it. Yeah. No, it took a while for me to, which is true of novels in general, but get kind of hooked in to get it, and then it's very smooth. Mm-hmm. But there was a little interview with David Sedaris um, when the book came out, where he talked about the rhymes and stuff, and how amazed he was because I guess as Rakoff was writing it, he would send him pieces of it to read, and he's just like, and he's like, the rhymes are perfect. 
And he, Sedaris goes on this whole thing about sloppy rhymes mm-hmm. and sloppy rhymes in like music and culture. And he's like, David's rhymes are like, they're perfect. Mm-hmm. He's so good at it. And it, it's tied up so closely in my mind with his voice that it has this quality. There's this wry humor and this sort of, it's a sort of Baroque way of talking that is so familiar to me. And it feels real intimate and sort of this voice in your ear quality. And I think I'm a very fast reader. And after we like had listened to a bit of him, because part of that, my friend David episode of this American life is there's an excerpt from the book that he reads and it's, it helps like, I think slow it down. Cause I'm like, da, 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 you know, cause there's a real rhythm and I can get going pretty fast yeah, reading it. Yeah. Um, but if you hear that voice in your, in your mind, it can help slow. I know. And he reads it. He reads slow his rhymes is mm-hmm. in a very like savoring way. Mm-hmm. Um, no, it's very moving, very moving book. I think yeah. very intimate, the ways the characters brush up against each other and hurt each other or mm-hmm. help each other. Ugh, I mean, yeah. So it starts, it's interesting, I think, because he, he never says, like, oh, this is the 20s or whatever. No, but I think it's, it's all context. It's very clear, though, reading it. Yeah. Like, you read the first section, and you know it's in, like, a, a historical And part of that is setting. the details are so good. Mm-hmm. He's so good with the details and the names and the words and the places that it sets it without it. He never has to say, you don't get the little, it's like, uh, it's you know, like now an it's action movie yeah. where it's like, do-do-do-do-do-do-do, Beirut, you know? <laughs> Um, you don't need that, you know, yeah. you know, just by the context. Yeah. Kind of. Is it the 50s? Is this the 80s? Mm-hmm. Are we, you know, is this today or more or less today? Yeah. Yeah. And then there is kind of like a central character in Clifford. Yeah. Who Cliff. in the second section is like a boy yeah. um, who loves to draw and um, kind of has like a epiphany, I guess, about his sexual identity uh, yeah. through art and is very supported by his mother. And then he befriends his cousin Helen mm-hmm. and they have a nice friendship. It's and hard. that's like the, it's their friendship kind of that brings it kind of back in, in the end. It's hard not to read Cliff as a little bit of the like Rakoffian yeah. character. Mm-hmm. But yeah, he's an artist. He, they live in Burbank and he ends up going to San Francisco mm-hmm. and uh, really thriving in that, in the gay culture there mm-hmm. until AIDS arrives yeah. and he sees his friends dying. Yeah. There's this part where he talks about, you know, first it's just one and that's, you know, sad and then it's two and then it's suddenly it's everyone you know um, and then it's him. Yeah. yeah. There's another section later in the story where he, that character also gets AIDS and dies. Yeah. That seems very F45, which is a little younger than yeah. Rakoff. Well, in Rakoff, you have to remember too that Rakoff went through the the, oh, yeah. the plague. That's it. We went through AIDS. Uh-huh. Um, so like he's very, and then he talks in other places about that. Mm-hmm. The Having gone through that experience, which was so common of gay men at that time to either die or be the person who visited a lot of bedsides and was at a lot mm-hmm. of funerals. I know there's some of the details get me so much too. It's like a cliff when he's dying. There's a, there's a guy who's like this nurse and it's like, he has some line about how he's, you know, his hands smell like almonds. He's really strong. And he's like in place of all the other people who've already died. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, Oh, but of course everybody also reads those sections about dying with a particular force because of Rakoff situation when he was writing them even though he wasn't dying of aids yeah but there's like a certain but there's a parallel there dying before your time and knowing that you're going like as it's happening yeah like an awareness i guess of your impending death do we want to before we move on and talk uh a little bit about some of the other rack stuff do we want to read a piece I wanted to read this little part that you were just talking about, which is in the, the little chapter or section where Clifford d- dies. And he's talking about his nurse, Louise. Mm-hmm. He said, Louise was bull strong, endlessly calm, and had magic hands, always cool, smelling of almonds. Louise, in place of dead parents, friends, lovers, rubbed Clifford's temples and tucked in the covers. 
that's the kind of intimacy we're talking about. Yeah. Um, uh, but also there's a lot of humor in the book and I oh, don't really very funny. Like say that too. There's like that rich couple with the woman with the, the changing identities. Yeah. yeah. Um, Susan. Susan or Sloan, Sloan when she wants to be real waspy or there's a, there's like a Hebrew name. She yes. Takes when she returns to her Jewish roots, mm-hmm. they get together while she's dating his best friend and then they make him toast at their wedding. Right. And he kills it. Yeah. Um, tells an animal fable. Yes. That I guess had been part of that little fable had been part of Rakov's storytelling for a little while. Yeah. And he makes it. It's about a scorpion and a tortoise. And somebody pointed out to him after he was doing it in live shows that like tortoises don't swim. Yeah. And swimming is key to the story's success. And so he actually builds it in that like after Nate, the character Nathan gives this toast, his his uh, his ex-girlfriend's father joins him in the bathroom and they have this moment mm-hmm. where, you know, he's like, my daughter's never going to be never going to be happy. You're all right, kid kind of moment. And then he points out to him that if he tells that toast again, he should do it with the, the right animal, the right animal. <laughs> yeah. So through the book, I'm like, OK, kind of starting to wonder, like how the Cliff and Helen uh, characters are going to line up with the Josh, s- Josh and, and Susan, Susan characters. And in the very last section, it does. It does. I guess it. like a spoiler alert. But right. um, yeah, and we don't have to say the details, but but that it does. It yeah. does. There's a real it's like a little it's a real jewelry box of a novel. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just every every little spring is perfect and it all clicks into place. But I liked that moment of the last chapter of unfolding. So Josh is, so I want to talk about it. So Josh is, is his father has dementia. Josh's mother. Mother has dementia. Sorry. Josh's mother is Helen. No. No? N- n- no. Are you sure? Yes. So, so Cl- Cliff's cousin Helen later has a section as an adult where she's working as a secretary for some sort of firm in New York and she has an affair with her boss, mm-hmm. who is Josh's father. Mm. And during her sec- her part, like a, a fairly long affair where she'd found herself kind of like collecting st- stamps and little gifts for him to give to his son. Yeah. And gave them to him uh, along with like a, like an artsy nude photo that Cliff had taken when they were teenagers. And then decades later, when Josh is going through his father's things because he has dementia, he finds this envelope of stamps that's addressed to him that he never received from his father's mm. lover. Okay. And that photo, which she had given him, that he never opened. Yeah. And both she, in her part, talks about regretting ever giving that away because yeah. it was like the best photo of her that had ever been taken. It felt like giving up. It was the best thing that Cliff, as he's dying. And as Cliff's dying, he regrets not having that because Because he thinks it's the best thing he ever did. The best work of art he ever made. But Helen is in it later. Isn't there, there's a section about a woman with dementia too. You know what I'm talking about? Yes. I think it's Josh's. Hannah. Yeah. It's Hannah, not Helen. Yeah. Josh's. (laughs) Uh-oh. Mother, I think that's what breaks up their marriage. Is he's right. taking care of his he's mother. He's taking care of his mother. And but uh, his fault. Yeah. Okay. I got it all. And I got it. yeah. So it's not his father who has dementia. His father died when he was young in some sort of. He just died. I don't a- even know. Accident. They or tell us. Yeah. They just say he was ten. Yeah. So he's long gone. He's been taking care of his mother with dementia. Right. And Susan like divorces him because she's like I don't know. Shallow. <laughs> yeah. Jealous. She's got some issues. Yeah. Her, pretty much the stuff her father said about her trajectory pretty much mm-hmm. is uh, accurate. And so after his mother, after taking care of his mother who has dementia, he finds a box labeled like Ted's stuff. And mm-hmm. that's where he finds, this is Ted, like the father he barely re, you know, remembers. Yeah, there's a very beautiful scene mm-hmm. of him sort of having all these sense memories. Just opening the thing up. And going through pockets. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So like that that mystery of like kind of discovering little pieces of, you know, long gone family. There's also like the thread of caretaking in the book too. Mm-hmm. 
So the the man from the very first section who helps Margaret on the train in the second section where he's Clifford's father, he had a stroke. And mm-hmm. so he's a very debilitating stroke that needs, yeah. so he needs care. And he's cared for an Aunt Sally. Is it Aunt mm-hmm. Sally? Yeah. It is, you know, very, there's a scene of care there. Yeah. And a, a section two where they'd moved to Burbank and Cliff's mom is talking about this weird kind of phase of her life. She's finding herself in where she's not really like a wife anymore, but she's not a widow either. She's become like a caretaker. Yeah. Yeah. So there's that caretaking, the caretaking of Clifford. Caretaking and illness mm-hmm. and, and sort of the relationship of the mind to the body. Yeah. Uh, is a big thing. And also the sense of like caring for strangers. He talks about caring for his mother when she has dementia where she doesn't know who he is. Um, yeah. 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 There's a lot going on for such a, it is a really a, a short book mm-hmm. and a quick read, even reading it slowly mm-hmm. or slower. It's still quick. It's a very interesting book. And yeah, you don't see, I was thinking a lot about, cause this is national poetry month. Um, form. Formal poetry, Mm -hmm. which, you know, you don't see as much of contemporary, not just this. This is even more unusual, but even uh, formal poets in more traditional verse, you don't see a ton. There are a few that I can think of, but it's a really interesting. Yeah. And like I said, I've read a lot of novels in verse and I think they've all been in free verse. Like I can't think of another one like this at all. Yeah. Oh, no, I can't think of another one like this. And when I'm thinking of like the few contemporary sort of formal poets, it's it's in more like not long form poetry. But it's interesting what the form does for you, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I've heard different poets talk about that, you know, restriction, the gift of restriction in making art mm-hmm. like a as being like a limited palette and actually can sort of free you from the paralysis of all the options mm-hmm. so that, you know you plunge forward with what, you know, a limited palette and you actually make something rather than being overwhelmed by the and, open possibility. And I think the challenge like a vocabulary, like when you're rhyming, like he is there makes it, I think so that he's able to say, because he has to use, he's really got to use his vocabulary. Yeah. It makes it so he can say a lot in like a small Yes. Page count, I guess. I think that's true. I think um, that's true. There's a way that you could be very sloppy and write a lot with crappy rhymes, but he does a really like it's very smart. It is. It's very. It's a very smart book, and you know, sly, sort of funny at turns, sad at turns, but very tight on the rhymes. Yeah, mm-hmm. very clever. Yeah, and some um, I feel like cultural references that I did not get. <laughs> but I think it might be funnier if I <laughs> did get them. Yeah, there's kind of a kaleidoscope of references. And some of them I get and some of them I don't. And some of them are, you know, words in foreign languages. And, you know, it's like I don't catch them all. But it doesn't take away to me mm-hmm. from the the sort of the tone with, that carries the book. Yeah. And, like, I think that there's, like, the, the part about um, the Susan character when she becomes, like, a Zionist. Mm-hmm. Has a lot of jokes in there that I don't really have like the cultural knowledge to get, but I could tell that that's what it was mm-hmm. what was happening. So there's also besides the novel, um, there's also he wrote three books of essays. There was a fourth, I think, posthumous sort of collection. Yeah, I'd said that's like the unselected works of David Rakoff. Yeah, because um, he did a lot of stuff here and there, you know, and and you hear that in the our friend David episode. He did a lot of stuff here and there either on stage or in for magazines. for magazines. Yeah. And if you read the essays, a lot of them are occasioned by magazines. Um, and I have not read uh, the first two books, fraud and don't get too comfortable. I'd like to go back. I, I reread half empty, which is probably the most famous one. And you'd read that one before. I don't know if I'd read the whole thing. And you know, some of the pieces in here are also things he did on stage, but like expanded mm-hmm. or stories he told in interviews. So it's like hard to remember. Yeah. Um, there was kind of like in here, a bunch of the stuff he was talking about a lot at the time. There's there's an essay about, there's a lot about Jewishness. There's an essay about eating pork, about being a Jew who yeah. decides to eat pork. And I just started to read that one yesterday, but then I fell asleep instead. Um, there's a lot because this book was is kind of on a theme, half empty. Defensive pessimism was the term. He gets really interested 
in this book that this academic had written, um, The Power of Negative Thinking. Because he feels he's, um, he's very earnest, but he also, you know, he feels like there's a sort of charlatan, sort of positive psychology, positive, bullyingly positive cultural thing going on. And he, and he goes to defend sort of defensive pessimism, which he distinguishes from sort of the sort of pessimism where you say, you wake up in the morning and you say, oh, today is going to be terrible. And then you, so you just don't get out of bed, mm-hmm. which he says is an illness. And defensive pessimism, where you're thinking, oh my gosh, this is going to be a disaster, this podcast. And then you proceed to why? <laughs> and then you go, uh, well, am I going to forget any pieces of equipment? Am I going to, you know, be thirsty? Am I going to, you know, and then you prepare. Mm-hmm. And so he talks about how useful that kind is. Kind of like defensive driving. I guess that's that's the, right. That's right. Metaphor. Defensive pessimism. And so he, he talks about that. There's like an essay about that. And he also talks about his unprofit status and like the dot com boom mm-hmm. and how weird it was to him. He's like at one point there's this scene. The book opens in the scene where um, actually... I am going to read something from here, but I'm also going to just kind of hop a little bit. I love the, 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 is it epigraph the book opens with is uh, from Vera Pavlova. And it's, if there was nothing to regret, there was nothing to desire. And he has this essay called the bleak shall inherit. And it opens like in the middle of the dot-com bubble. And he's like a magazine person who's being sent to talk to all these people. And it opens, we were so happy. It was miserable. And he's like up in this office building. They've like driven a Lexus like into the elevator. The elevator's big enough they could drive a Lexus into it. They're up in this loft above Manhattan. Um, and that's the, you know, he's talking about sort of this false positivity and bubbles and all of this stuff. Um, I think that I don't remember what we were listening to, if it was that This American Life or if it was the the video, but where he talks about, oh, yeah, you know, like the power of positive thinking it's really great the thing about it though is it it's a lie <laughs> yeah 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 no he's very he's very clear about that i think one of my we'll just say i think one of my favorite things he does in the book some of the book is about his illness the latter part of the book is about his illness um is the stuff around rent the musical rent uh-huh. which he also performed a sort of slim slimmer version as in that episode about him um and he, they talks our glass talks, talks about, about that piece where it's like they never really aired it on this american life because it felt like too late to have a commentary on rent Uh, but it's a good one so good on rent (laughs) and it's like and the points he makes i remember i listened to that interview he did an interview on radio q or whatever and uh, the cbc radio where he talked about it and his problem with rent as you know a gay man a gay artist living in new york in the 80s and 90s and uh, he does it in a in a larger form in the essays, and it's just so good. And, and it, I'm glad we're talking about it because it it gives a chance to talk about the fact that Rakoff is like a satirist. He's clever. He's sharp. He's not afraid to go after something, and he go going after a beloved musical. But he's never mean spirited. I think that's one of the things that makes him so. It's there's an earnestness underneath the, the 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 humor and the satire and all that stuff there's a kindness underneath so he's not going after rent just to go after you know a popular sort of positive play but he has a real problem with like all of these characters who one he thinks it's like a terrible representation of what an artist you know they're never actually doing any work <laughs> and they're like marching around talking about how they're not going to pay their rent and he talks about how hard it was for him to become an artist and how he worked for years he worked like menial publishing jobs and struggled and was like too afraid to really try for many 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 years and uh but he paid his rent (laughs) but he also it's twofold he paid his rent but he also paying the rent is a metaphor for um rakoff for doing the work right when he talks about you know he says in in rent they just like hang out and he's like well the sort of unglamorous, unsexy work of art making is the opposite of hanging out. It's like being alone and sitting down and tolerating yourself. You know, it's, it's very easy. You go out to the discotheque, you go out and see friends and distract yourself from yourself. But if you're going to be an artist, you sit down and you sit with yourself, with what you're uncomfortable with, with your failings, with your dissatisfaction, with your own 
product and you you sit there and you grind out work you pay your rent and i i, I always love that I just love that way of thinking about art making as like sitting, you need to sit with and tolerate yourself. Mm -hmm. And he talks about it being a difficult thing to do. Lindsay Ellis has like a, a pretty similar commentary about rent. She does like video essays on YouTube. She's like a, I guess a cultural commentator. And she also is like a science fiction author and specifically talking about the movie rent um, where they like turn on their friend who's become successful and is actually paying their rent for them. Like he's like a sellout. <laughs> but yeah, and I think that kind of ties in. So in that piece he did for Invisible Made Visible, he talks about being at a dinner party with people his age where like the conversation turned to like everyone's sense that they're were living half lives, that they weren't, you know, fulfilling their potential. And what work they could be doing to do that. And he said, you know, at this point of his life, he's have like really, he was over self-improvement. Yeah. Doesn't have the luxury of that anymore. He's over that. And how shallow it looked to mm -hmm. the person who, you know, he talks about his rapidly dividing cells, the guy who can't use his arm uh -huh. and he, he equates it to like, like talking about a sitting with a bunch of triathletes who are talking about their training regimens when you don't have any legs. Mm -hmm. And, in the contrast, you know, in that piece, you know, there's a real sense of what becomes really important is very elemental. It's yeah. movement. It's but he contact. Like, he, he says there were things that he used to do or thought that he would do that he doesn't even do anymore. And he can't imagine even doing anymore. He says like dancing, which he done as a person. And then he stops his essay, his like to actually just break into this choreographed dance you know demonstrating actually the fact that like he he didn't stop doing this thing and I think that's related to kind of that criticism of rent and talking about making stuff is to I guess like stop talking about it and just do it yeah I'm like paging through the collection here looking for something to read that doesn't have swear words <laughs> um I guess I could just read the opening. Yeah. So I'm going to read the opening to Half Empty. It's an essay called The Bleak Shall Inherit. We were happy. It was miserable. Although it was briefly marvelous and strange to see a car parked outside an office, the wide hallway used like a street, many stories above the city. The millennium had turned. The planes had not fallen from the sky. The trains had not careened off the tracks. Neither had the heart monitors, prenatal incubators, nor the iron lungs reset themselves to some suicidal zero hour to self-destruct in a lethal kablooey of Y2K shrapnel as feared. And most important, the ATMs continued to dispense money and what money it was. I was off to see some of it, like Edith Wharton's Gilded Age Buccaneers, when titled but cash-poor Europeans joined in wedlock with wealthy American girls in the market for pedigree. There were mutually abusive marriages popping up all over the city, between unmoneyed creatives with ethereal web-based schemes and the financiers who, desperate to get in on the action, bankrolled them. The internet at that point was still newish and completely uncharted territory, to me at least. I had walked away from a job at what would undoubtedly have been the wildly lucrative ground floor 1986 Tokyo because it had seemed so boring, given my aggressive lack of interest in technology or machines unless they make food. Almost 15 years later, I was no more curious nor convinced, but now found myself at numerous parties for startups, my comprehension of which extended no further than the free snacks and drinks and the perfume of money-scented elation in the air. The workings of new media remained entirely murky, and I, a baffled hypocrite, scarfing down another beggar's purse with creme fraiche, flecked with just enough beads of caviar to get credit, pausing in my chewing only long enough to mutter, it'll never last. <laughs> it was becoming increasingly difficult to fancy myself the guilelessly astute child at the procession who points out the emperor's nakedness as acquaintances were suddenly becoming millionaires on paper, and legions of 21-year-olds were securing lucrative and rewarding positions as content providers instead of answering phones for a living, as I had at that age. Brilliant success was all around. So, so happy. <laughs> so that's the opening little section. I have... Uh I stumbled upon this article from like 2020 and it was written by somebody whose name I did not recognize, but who had 
gone to school with David Rakoff as kids in Toronto, um, talking about how he wished David was around to comment on like the state of the world now. Oh boy. And you reading that made me think of, you know, all of the stuff around and you know, like <laughs> crypto, crypto, Oh, art. cryptocurrency, Bitcoin. Yeah. Or oh, yeah. What yeah, are those yeah. things? Called? I don't even know. Yeah. They're like, uh, I don't know. Yeah. I don't no, really understand the market. No, you read this book. But you, it really makes me think of like that dot-com boom where people are like just pouring money into something that no one really understands as far as I can tell. Yeah. No, no, no. And you read the book and it, you know, it's of its moment. Mm-hmm. But it also like it speaks, the bigger things speak to so much crazy stuff. The world has gotten even crazier. Yeah. So it's it's still very much worth a read. Um and that was published in 2010? It was. Yeah. 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 So this has been really fun. I I feel like, you know, this maybe was a little bit of an indulgence to me, my love for <laughs> David Rakoff, um, sandwiched between uh, Beverly Cleary and Herman Melville. But uh, it was so much fun to revisit his writing and his his voice on the radio I think there was such an outpouring of grief when he died because, you know, we form we form relationships with with artists, with shows, with with media. We really do. I remember actually an opening to a This American Life episode where Ira Glass talked about that. He was talking about the OC and he was talking about how he cried when it ended. <laughs> and uh, he was talking about how scientists had like measured people, what was going on in the brain when somebody watched like a show. And it was the same like centers that light up when you see a friend. We form real relationships with these voices that come into our heads via books and the radio and TV. And TV. And, and so there was such an outpouring of grief. But I also feel a real like I grew up, I was a public radio baby. And I really grew up with those, you know, Voices, I feel like this is maybe an exaggeration, wafting over the cradle, you know, David Sedaris, Sarah Vowell, David Rakoff, Ira Glass. And so I'm very emotionally invested in that world. It's interesting, David Rakoff never got to see, you know, they've gone so many places, all those people and, you know, sort of the empire that is creative, particularly creative nonfiction on the radio. It's really exploded. And, and and it's so much of it is. I mean, I guess that's why we're here making this podcast. <laughs> so much of that, a certain kind of narrative mm-hmm. produced art on audio waves, is so much is traceable to, to Ira Glass and his sort of team tossy of artists yeah. through lines of mentorship and influence. So um, I wanted to comment on that while we're talking about somebody who was famous for being a part of that kind of thing. We're in a, an increasingly robust age for that kind of work so and uh you know Rakoff is one of the people in that lineage all right and then I wanted to add that I had found this little article on oprah.com um where it's people talking about the poems that really mean something to them so since national poetry month I thought I'd bring that up yeah they had talked to David Rakoff at the time that they yeah. wrote this and I'll put a little link to it in the show notes but um, I know what it is. He talks about Elizabeth Bishop. And so he said, I've been using Elizabeth Bishop's letter to New York for the last few years, just as reliantly and regularly as I take aspirin for headaches. Yeah. Yeah. There's a beautiful clip of him reading that poem during his fresh air interview with Terry Gross. Yeah. And it's a lovely poem and he reads it so well. Yeah. And he talks in the book in Half Empty. He finally has to get an MRI. He's mm-hmm. avoided it. He's kind of claustrophobic. And he repeats to himself two different poems. That's how he gets through it. One of them is Letter letter from New York, or Letter to New York. Letter to New York, yeah. which is v- very good. And you should read it. Yeah, he talks about like being in that coffin. And then the other thing I wanted to say is that I'd read a little article, and I'll try to find that too, where Ira Glass is talking about editing his his audiobook for Love dishonor, marry, die, cherish, perish, and how Rakoff had insisted on doing it was like the last thing he wanted to do before he died was to make the audiobook for this. And he was so weak doing it that his like breathing was really belabored. Mm, yeah. And Ira Glass talks about going through and editing and taking out the breaths and replacing them with pauses 
and how kind of like a tedious work it was. Yeah. But how he was glad to do it like as an act of love. And I'm going to cry a little. Yeah. No, it's, um, he, it's he said it was like building a coffin for someone you loved out of little tiny. Yeah. Little yeah. ceramic tiles. Yeah. The beautiful. It was emotional, beautiful, beautiful uh, person to reflect on mm-hmm. for this national poetry month. And I think before we get ready and close this out, um, I, I read it last year. I think I'll read it again. And we'll close out with that poem. That was such a bomb to um, to David Rakoff and is an excellent poem. And I would note also uh, him loving Elizabeth Bishop, also a poet who wrote in form. Mm-hmm. Letter to New York for Louise Crane. In your next letter, I wish you'd say where you're going and what you're doing. How are the plays and after the plays, what other pleasures you're pursuing? Taking cabs in the middle of the night, driving as if to save your soul where the road goes round and round the park and the meters glare like an immoral owl. And the trees look so queer and green, standing alone in big black caves, and suddenly you're in a different place where everything seems to happen in waves. And most of the jokes you just can't catch, like dirty words rubbed off a slate, and the songs are loud but somehow dim, and it gets so terribly late. And coming out of the brownstone house to the gray sidewalk, the watered street, One side of the building rises with the sun like a glistening field of wheat. Wheat, not oats, dear. I'm afraid if it's wheat, it's none of your sowing. Nevertheless, I'd like to know what you are doing and where you are going. Thank you. Yeah, thank you all for joining us, celebrating uh, the life of David Rakoff, celebrating National Poetry Month, celebrating reading once again. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, next month, and I've already started reading it, um, but we are tackling the work of Herman Melville, and uh, we'll be reading Moby Dick, and we'll see what Austin can do. Yeah, um, I'm I'm debating, because Becky read a bit of Moby Dick to me aloud, and I I liked it. I liked it. I feel like I was a little shocked. But It's more, like, funny than you... Are led to believe by the culture. It cuts through more. You know, it's interesting to read somebody that long ago. And some people cut through. Like, Mm -hmm. that's my experience with, like, Virginia Woolf. She cuts through, like, she's right in front of you, right? But I'm debating whether to read Moby Dick or I was thinking of Bartleby the Scrivener. People have told me to read. you should definitely read Bartleby the Scrivener. Billy Budd. People have told me to read. You should definitely read Bartleby the Scrivener. It will take you. It's a short story. It won't take you very long at all. I'll probably also read Billy Budd. And maybe I'll see how much Moby Mm -hmm. Dick I can get under my belt. But. Thank y'all for tuning in. Yeah, thank you. You've been listening to your show. Or mine. I'm Becky. I'm Austin. (laughs) Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Support for Your Shelf or Mine comes from the friends of the Longview Public Library, the Longview Library Foundation, and listeners like you. Your Shelf or Mine jingle is written and performed by Megan McKeldery from A Song for You. Find Megan online at ReverbNation.com slash Megan McKeldery. That's M-E-A-G-H-A-N-M-C-E-L-D-E-R-R-Y, ReverbNation.com slash Megan McKeldery. <laughs> you want to do that again? Nope. Nope, it's going to be great. Okay. Um. <laughs>